October 20th, 1944. 100,000 troops wait ready aboard hundreds of transport ships anchored off the coast of the island of Leyte. Outside a select few, most Americans had never heard of Leyte. However, it was about to become a household name. Finally, after two years of brutal Japanese occupation, General Douglas MacArthur and his 6th Army had returned to liberate the Philippines. In preparation for the landing, scores of battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and rocket ships begin a bombardment of the island in order to clear out the Japanese beach defenses. Let them have it, boys. Welcome to episode two of LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, a seven-part documentary series covering the final months of World War II in the Pacific Theater. Last time, we discussed the development of the B-29 Superfortress and the beginning of the bombing campaign on Japan. Today, we cover General Douglas MacArthur's return to the Philippines, the Battle of Leyte Gulf, the invasion of Luzon, and the battle for Iwo Jima. Buckle up, the final and bloodiest phase of the Pacific War is only just beginning. The second battle for the Philippines in World War II was going to be fought under entirely different circumstances than the first time. Again, America and Japan had locked horns over the strategic islands, but this time, the United States and its huge armada would be the aggressor. The Philippine island of Leyte was the first to feel the brunt of the American invasion force. One of America's most ignominious defeats was about to be erased. The first landings on Leyte came on October 20th, 1944. Elements of the 6th Army poured back onto Philippine soil for the first time in three years. The battle for the Philippines had begun. Ahead were months of fighting before all of the islands could be judged as liberated from the terror-filled reign of the Japanese. But that was on the land. The huge task force that had taken part in the amphibious landings still had its work cut out. The Emperor's Imperial High Command had decided on a final desperate attempt to wipe out the American armada that now stood anchored in Leyte Gulf. On October 22nd, two Japanese task forces appeared in Philippine waters and a gargantuan naval encounter was soon raging at full pitch. For five days and nights, the battle seesawed back and forth. The Japanese Navy pulled out all the stops in their last-ditch effort to wipe out the U.S. fleet. Japanese carrier-based planes harassed the ships like a horde of angry wasps. It was an unrelenting attack that tested the U.S. defenses to the limit. Fifteen major Japanese battle wagons were destroyed in the five-day fight, while the greatest American loss was the light carrier Princeton. Japanese planes had handed her a mortal blow. Finally, she had to be scuttled by her own crew. The Princeton's planes then landed on other of the fleet's carriers. The enemy had been dealt a double blow, a defeat on the waters of Leyte Gulf, and a triumphant return of General Douglas MacArthur to Philippine soil. After being forced to flee the Philippines in 1942, General Douglas MacArthur promised to the people of the Philippines that he would return. However, before he could get there, he would have to work his way across the South Pacific, hopping from one island to another, clawing back from the Japanese army in two years what the Japanese had managed to seize in only a few months. First were the Solomon Islands, where the infamous battle for Guadalcanal became the first significant Allied land victory in the Pacific. Then came New Guinea, where the Australians had been holding by a thread the key city of Port Moresby for months. MacArthur reinforced the Australians with American divisions and began a fierce fight through the jungles and over the mountains of the island, advancing toward the northern coast where the Japanese had set up their supply chain. After months of slogging through the jungle, MacArthur and the Australians managed to take the northern coastline and secure New Guinea. With Australia out of immediate danger, MacArthur turned west, advancing into eastern Indonesia and then invading the island of Palau in early 1944. With these recent gains, MacArthur had gotten his force to within 600 miles of the Philippines. 
After taking Palau, MacArthur met with his subordinates and announced the next objective, the Philippines. He was determined to make good on his promise. However, many of his commanders did not like the idea. Many were in favor of bypassing the Philippines altogether, instead invading the island of Formosa, modern-day Taiwan. The fight went up the ranks from MacArthur's staff all the way to Washington, with many in favor of invading Formosa, including some of MacArthur's superiors. MacArthur, though, was a stubborn man and was hell-bent on fulfilling his promise. MacArthur used his reputation, success, rank, and pre-war post as the chief of staff of the army as wrecking balls, tossing verbal grenade after verbal grenade into the Pentagon. After weeks of feuding at the highest levels of the military hierarchy, MacArthur finally got his way and an invasion of the Philippines was approved by Washington. MacArthur had permission. Now he needed a plan. In order to take the Philippines, MacArthur needed air power and a secure supply line. He decided, therefore, that rather than going straight for the big prize, Luzon, the largest and most populous island, he would instead invade first the smaller island of Leyte. Leyte was large enough to provide an excellent staging point for MacArthur's troops, as well as providing excellent port facilities and many airfields from which MacArthur could conduct his campaign. The airfields on Leyte would put the entire archipelago within range of land-based American planes, a critical factor in MacArthur's past successes. So it was that MacArthur chose Leyte as the first target in his Philippine campaign. He prepared his army for battle, the U.S. 6th Army, numbering around 200,000 men, and boarded them onto hundreds of landing ships and transports. The Navy came out in force too, sending two massive battle fleets to support the landing. The 7th Fleet, commanded by Admiral Thomas Kincaid, would support the landings using the massive guns of his six older World War I-era battleships and provide air support for the invasion with its many smaller escort carriers. The 3rd Fleet, under the command of Admiral William Bull Halsey, was the main force, constituting much of the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fighting Force, including 17 huge fleet-sized carriers, each carrying around 100 aircraft, as well as a number of battleships including the newer Iowa-class battleship the USS New Jersey, his flagship, along with scores of supporting cruisers and destroyers. The two fleets combined were the largest fleet ever assembled at the time, numbering over 300 warships. In early October, the force set off for Leyte from the South Pacific, arriving off the eastern side of the Philippines by the 15th. On the 16th, the fleet sailed into the archipelago, entering Leyte Gulf. Leyte, on the western side of the gulf, was flanked by the island of Samar to the north and the island of Dinagat to the southeast, the three of them constricting the body of water between them called Leyte Gulf. On the 17th, following a bombardment, the 6th Army landed on the northeastern shore of Leyte, fighting its way off the beaches and into the countryside with relative ease compared with their earlier operations. The Japanese commander in the Philippines, General Tomoyuki Yamashita, who had distinguished himself in the early campaigns of the war, had not expected the Americans to land on Leyte first and had not put many of his men there in the defense. After the invasion began, Yamashita decided not to reinforce Leyte, knowing that at this stage the island was almost certainly lost. Yamashita instead wanted the main battle to be fought on Luzon, where the majority of his army was positioned. However, his superiors in Tokyo thought otherwise, telling him that the main battle for the control of the Philippines would be fought on Leyte, and ordered him to heavily reinforce its defense. Yamashita, reluctantly, did as he was told, and began sending reinforcements to the island by ship under cover of darkness, landing them on the still Japanese-controlled western shore of the island. Although Yamashita thought so, his superiors were not insane. Rather, they had another plan in mind. One they hoped would destroy the American fleet sitting off Leyte, allowing them to defeat MacArthur's army and perhaps turn the tide of the war. In order for it to work, though, they needed to keep the American fleet near Leyte, that being the reason for their seemingly idiotic decision to reinforce its defense. The Japanese plan was to use what remained of the fleet to destroy the American fleet defending the landing on Leyte, allowing the ground troops to counterattack and destroy the American army. However, after the Battle of the Philippine Sea back in June, the Japanese fleet air arm had been reduced to only 100 aircraft, nowhere near enough to man the remaining carriers. It was instead decided then to use the carriers as a distraction, pulling the third fleet away from Leyte so that the still strong Japanese surface fleet of battleships and cruisers could pummel the seventh fleet guarding Leyte without being attacked by the third fleet's hundreds of aircraft. If successful, it would be the first major battleship-on-battleship -battleship engagement of World War II and could delay American victory in the Pacific by years. The Japanese distraction force of carriers, without their planes, known to them as the Northern Force, left from their base at Kure, near Hiroshima, steaming south toward Luzon. Their goal was to draw Halsey's Third Fleet north toward Luzon and away from Leyte. The center force, the largest of the three, 
having as its core the two super battleships Yamato and Musashi, left its base in Brunei and steamed north towards the southern shore of Luzon and the Sibuyan Sea. Their goal was to sail through the San Bernardino Strait, between the islands of Luzon and Samar, and emerge on the eastern side of the Philippines to the north of Leyte. It would form one half of a pincer heading for Leyte. The other half, known as the Southern Force, sailed out of Singapore, heading for the Sulu Sea, their goal being to sail through the Surigao Strait, entering Leyte Gulf from the south. The plan called for the two pincers to enter Leyte Gulf from the south and the east at the same time, splitting the 7th Fleet's defense, ensuring victory. Everything had to go perfectly for it to work, though, and even at this early stage, the plan was beginning to unravel. The center force, shortly before entering the Sibuyan Sea, was spotted by American submarines USS Darter and USS Dace. The two submarines launched a torpedo attack against the fleet, hitting and sinking two Japanese destroyers. After slipping away unharmed, the submarines radioed Halsey and the third fleet, telling them the Japanese fleet's location, heading, and speed. Enough for Halsey to deduce their plan, taking from the Japanese the element of surprise. The next day, October 24th, Halsey ordered multiple air attacks against the Japanese fleet. Hundreds of American carrier aircraft launched a two-wave attack on the fleet, damaging many ships and sinking the super battleship Musashi. Its 18.1-inch guns, along with its sister ship Yamato's, were the largest ever put to sea, and their heavy armor and large structures made them the largest battleships ever built. Musashi, before going down, was hit by no less than eight torpedoes and 11 bombs, a testament to the strength of the ship. As a result of the loss of this major warship, the Japanese commander, Admiral Kurita, ordered his ships to turn around and steam northwest, away from the San Bernardino Strait. Halsey received the news and assumed that he had won when a second force was spotted by his scout planes. A large carrier force, one fleet carrier supported by three light carriers, was steaming south and at that very moment was passing the northeastern tip of Luzon. Halsey, knowing the fleet carrier present was the carrier Zuikaku, the last remaining carrier that had taken part in the raid on Pearl Harbor, resolved to sink her and finish avenging Pearl Harbor. He turned his force north and began steaming at full speed to get within attack range. Little did Halsey know it, but he had fallen right into the Japanese trap, and as darkness settled on the night of the 24th, Kurita's center force turned around once more and began its journey through the San Bernardino Strait. However, their delay meant that at that very moment, the southern force, sailing towards the Surigao Strait, was about to run into the entirety of the U.S. 7th Fleet, not half of it, as had been the plan. American scout planes had spotted the Southern Force on the 23rd, and an attack by the air group of the carrier USS Enterprise had damaged a couple of the ships in the force. However, all of its ships were still battleworthy, and they presented a major threat to the landing force at Leyte. Admiral Kincaid, aware of the threat, sent his six battleships along with four heavy and four light cruisers, all under the command of Rear Admiral Jesse Oldendorf, to guard the Surigao Strait. Late on the night of the 24th, PT boats sent out for scouting spotted the forest as it entered the strait and relayed the information back to Oldendorf. Oldendorf, like Halsey, was eager to avenge Pearl Harbor, but for different reasons. Five of his six battleships had been sunk or damaged at Pearl Harbor. The USS Maryland, USS West Virginia, USS Pennsylvania, USS Tennessee, and USS California had all been raised and or repaired after the attack and all had been upgraded with radar gun directors designed specifically for night actions. As the Japanese force unknowingly sailed toward them in the dark, the resurrected battleships prepared to exact their revenge. Oldendorf deployed his ships in a line stretching across the strait, with their broadsides facing south toward the oncoming enemy. He was attempting to cross the T, as it is called, of the Japanese force, putting his ships in a position where they could fire the full force of their broadside at the enemy, while the enemy could only use their forward-firing weapons. The Japanese didn't know it, but they were sailing directly into the teeth of 16 16-inch, 48 14-inch, 35 8-inch, 54 6-inch, and 112 5-inch guns. One of the most heavily armed battle lines in the history of naval warfare. The American ships remained silent, with their lights extinguished, until the Japanese had sailed well within the range of their guns. Fire controllers zeroed in on the Japanese ships using their radar scopes each ship radioing the others in order to make sure that no two ships were aiming at the same target. Then, at 3.53 a.m. on the 25th of October, 1944, the last battleship-on-battleship -battleship engagement in history opened up with a 16-inch salvo fired from the USS West Virginia at a range of 13 miles. Bearing 273. Bearing 273. Range 12500. 
range, 125, Coming on target, sir. Permission to open fire, sir. Fire when ready. By 3.55 a.m., the whole battle line had begun opening fire on the Japanese column. The American gunners had a field day, scoring dozens of hits on the Japanese ships. The Japanese thought they were being attacked on all sides and began returning ineffective fire in multiple directions, nothing landing anywhere near the American battle line. The whole battle lasted less than half an hour, with the USS Mississippi being credited with firing the last salvo, the last shot fired in surface combat by a battleship in history. The entire Japanese force was either sunk or heavily damaged, with only a few of the smaller vessels slinking out of the strait to safety. The Battle of the Surigao Strait was a major American victory, but the battle for Leyte Gulf was still very much underway. The next morning, Admiral Halsey launched an air attack on the Japanese carrier force he had spotted the day prior. Hundreds of American planes swarmed the force, hitting the Zuikaku with scores of torpedoes and bombs, finally putting the last Pearl Harbor attacker to the bottom. In the space of eight hours, Pearl Harbor had been fully avenged. However, just as Halsey was beginning to think victory had finally been achieved, he received the horrifying news that he had been tricked, and at that moment, Leyte Gulf and the landing forces there were in mortal danger. By the morning of the 25th, the center force had passed through the San Bernardino Strait and was heading straight for the entrance to Leyte Gulf at full speed. The only thing between them and the landing forces was a small group of escort carriers and destroyers known as Taffy 3, under the command of Rear Admiral Clifton Sprague. Taffy 3, composed of six escort carriers and three destroyers, spotted a large force in the horizon early that morning. After a scout plane identified the force as Japanese, the pilot shouting that he could see the meatballs on their decks, Sprague ordered his carriers to scramble all of their aircraft and then sail at full speed, a pitiful 18 knots, toward a rain squall to the southeast in an attempt to break visual contact with the rapidly closing enemy. The force scrambled its 160 aircraft and sent them to attack the force before turning southeast as ordered. However, with their slow speed, the carriers could never hope to outrun the Japanese. Sprague was playing for time, hoping that he could delay the Japanese long enough to allow for Oldendorf's battleships to arrive on the eastern side of the Gulf in order to stop the center force like they had done with the southern force earlier that morning. They were still a few hours sailing away, though, and Sprague had an uphill battle ahead of him. Knowing that Taffy 3 faced almost certain doom, the commander of one of the destroyers, USS Johnston, Ernest E. Evans, ordered his ship to turn around and charge the enemy. He knew his five-inch guns would be useless against the battleships, including the mighty Yamato, but he hoped he instead could get within five miles of them so he could launch his torpedoes. Five miles was well within range of the Japanese guns, but he hoped to use the maneuverability of his ship to his advantage, ducking and weaving through the Japanese fire. He radioed Sprague of his decision and began steaming at full speed toward the Japanese. The other two destroyers, Seeing the suicidal but courageous charge of the Johnston, turned around and joined in as Sprague radioed the fleet the message, Small boys attack! The three destroyers laid down smoke screens to cover the withdrawal of the carriers, while dodging the Yamato's 18-inch shells. Meanwhile, Taffy 3's aircraft made repeated bomb and torpedo runs as well as strafing attacks on Japanese ships to throw off their aim. The three destroyers miraculously managed to get within five miles and began launching torpedo attacks on Admiral Kurita's force. With all of the planes, bombs, and torpedoes being thrown at him, Kurita had stirred up the hornet's nest and thought he was fighting a much greater force than he actually was. Taken aback by the ferocity of the American defense and receiving word of the defeat of the southern force and the sinking of the Zuikaku, Kurita turned back once again, this time for good, and began his retreat back through the San Bernardino Strait, but not before sinking the USS Johnston, killing Lieutenant Commander Evans, as well as the escort carrier USS Gambier Bay, sunk by the Yamato while retreating. The defeat of the center force marked the end of the Battle of Leyte Gulf, although sporadic fighting continued on the 26th as Halsey harassed the fleeing Japanese ships. The Battle of Leyte Gulf would be the largest naval battle fought in the history of mankind, involving well over 200,000 sailors and around 400 ships, the only other battle coming close being the Battle of Cape Echnomus during the Second Punic War. Leyte Gulf was a decisive American victory, with the Japanese losing one fleet carrier, three light carriers, three battleships, ten cruisers, and eleven destroyers sunk, 
practically the remainder of their surface vessels, as well as losing around 300 aircraft. The Imperial Japanese Navy, once the rulers of the Pacific, had ceased to be an effective fighting force. Meanwhile, the Americans had only one light carrier, two escort carriers, two destroyers, and one destroyer escort sunk, and around 200 planes lost. With the threat of the Japanese Navy eliminated once and for all, MacArthur was now free to finish taking Leyte, and then conduct the rest of his Philippines campaign as he saw fit. Fighting for Leyte continued through the rest of October, November, and into December. Much of the fighting centered around the Japanese-held port of Ormoc. It was from there where, despite the loss of the Battle of Leyte Gulf, General Yamashita was funneling reinforcements to Leyte under orders from Tokyo. Tens of thousands of them. In order for the Americans to secure Leyte, they would have to take Ormoc. MacArthur's men slugged their way over the mountain chain that ran north to south down the center of the island and along the coastal roads toward Ormoc, the Japanese slowing their advance at every turn. The Japanese troops laid roadblocks and defended elaborate cave systems in the mountains, often holding out until they had all been killed. The Americans, not wanting to take unnecessary losses upon encountering Japanese defenses, would often fall back and call in artillery and air power to pummel the Japanese into submission before carrying on. Hundreds of 105mm howitzers followed the advancing divisions, providing this crucial fire support. After securing the eastern shore of Leyte early on in the operation, Navy Seabees and Army engineers began constructing airfields to support the squadrons that would support MacArthur throughout the rest of the Philippines' campaign. By the time the battle for Ormoc was underway, these airfields had been completed, and Army Air Force's P-38s, B-25s, and B-26s were beginning to arrive and conduct bombing runs on the Japanese positions. The Japanese, under Yamashita, were keen to take these back, if possible, and began developing a plan to counterattack and take back the airfields and prevent the American planes from supporting their men on the ground. By early December, the Americans had fought their way across a number of jungle-covered ridges in the mountains around Ormoc and were closing in on their final goal. However, at that moment, the Japanese counterattack was ready. Two Japanese divisions deployed south of Ormoc had been made ready for the attack, and a force of 400 Japanese paratroopers had been sent to Luzon to attack the airfields and capture them, their orders being to hold on until the infantry could break through to them. The attack was to be centered on the Burauan airfield, at that time ironically defended by American paratroopers of the 11th Airborne Division. It was to be the first and only Japanese airborne assault of World War II. On the 6th of December, the Japanese counterattack began with an artillery barrage followed by a direct frontal assault onto the American positions. At the same time, the Japanese paratroopers began parachuting down towards Birawan Airfield. The Americans at the airfield were caught completely by surprise, not knowing that the Japanese had paratroopers, and pilots, maintenance crews, cooks, and clerks ran to grab any weapons they could find to fight off the Japanese. They began picking them off as they floated down toward the field. Meanwhile, on the main line, the Japanese encountered firm resistance, being met with a wall of bullets spewing forth from American machine guns and rifles. Mortars launched a heavy barrage of explosive rounds in the no-man's land, killing and wounding many of the attackers. The Japanese managed to take some ground, but made no serious gains. Meanwhile, the 400 Japanese paratroopers were picked off one by one as they landed, and were not able to gather in groups large enough to pose a significant threat to the base. Counterattack had failed, and Yamashita ordered his divisions to fall back toward Ormoc for the final stand. The battle for Ormoc lasted another couple weeks before the last significant groups of Japanese defenders were hunted down and eliminated by Christmas. The next day, the 26th, Leyte was declared secure the first major victory in MacArthur's quest to retake the Philippines. The question came up once again, where next? To that, MacArthur had an answer on which he was dead set, Luzon, the main prize, the largest and most heavily populated island, having on it the capital of Manila and the Bataan Peninsula, where MacArthur had been humiliated by the Japanese two years before. While Leyte may have been his return to the Philippines, it was to be in the invasion of Luzon where he would truly fulfill his promise, I shall return. Luzon, as it would become apparent to General MacArthur later, was the most heavily defended island in the Philippines. Yamashita had stationed 275,000 troops on the island and had organized them into three groups. First, the Shimbu Group, led by General Shizuo Yokoyama, numbered 80,000 men and was positioned on Luzon's mountainous and jungle-covered southern peninsula. Then the Kembu Group, led by General Rikichi Tsukada, and numbering 30,000 men, was assigned to guard central Luzon, specifically the capital of Manila. Lastly, the Shobu Group, led by General Yamashita himself, and 152,000 men strong,
was assigned to hold out in the mountains and jungles that dominated the northern part of the island. Yamashita had decided that, since there was no hope of reinforcement or victory, he would place his forces in such a manner that they could hold out for as long as possible, tying up American divisions in the Philippines that could be better used in an invasion of Japan itself. Yamashita could not win, but he could try to kill as many Americans as possible while losing. MacArthur's 280,000-strong attacking force landed in the Ngayan Gulf on the northwestern side of Luzon on January 9, 1945, encountering little resistance on the beaches. The fleet was harassed by Japanese air attacks, but nothing major occurred until a few days after the invasion began, the Japanese began crashing their planes into American ships, causing serious damage. This was intentional, the new tactic being known as the kamikaze, or divine wind. Due to their lack of experienced pilots, but abundance of planes, the Japanese turned these planes into human-guided missiles, filling them to the brim with fuel and explosives in order to inflict as much damage as possible. Already in this early stage of the invasion of Luzon, kamikazes had become the most effective use of Japanese air power, and they would only grow deadlier as the war progressed. MacArthur's force made quick work of the light beach defenses and began advancing to the south and east. The southern advance was targeted at Manila, with the hopes of capturing the major port and potential source of morale-boosting propaganda. The eastern offensive, meanwhile, was aimed at the eastern coast of Luzon, hoping to cut the Japanese defense in half. Little did the Americans know, but this was all according to Yamashita's plan, for they had not yet encountered his prepared positions that he had spent years turning into American death traps. By early February, the Americans had reached the outskirts of Manila and began advancing street by street into the city. It was here where they finally encountered significant enemy resistance, as the Kembu group had dug in well and had turned every city block into a miniature citadel. Flamethrowers, hand grenades, and submachine guns became the mode of fighting as the American troops pressed deeper into the heart of Manila, every block costing MacArthur hundreds of killed and wounded. For the hundreds of thousands of civilians stuck in the city, life became a living hell as food became scarce, stray shells exploded in homes, and desperate Japanese soldiers took their pent-up anger out on the civilian population. Thousands died in the crossfire or from hunger and disease, but well over a hundred thousand were killed or raped in cold blood by the Japanese defenders in what became known as the Manila Massacre. As the Americans fought their way toward the city center and the last Japanese defense lines, General Iwabuchi, commanding the Shimbu group to the south, ordered Manila's defenders to attempt a breakout. Thousands were killed in the attempt, and none were able to successfully break through to the other Japanese armies on Luzon. What remained of the garrison slinked back into their bunkers in the city center and spent the next few weeks desperately holding out against repeated American attacks. Finally, on March 3rd, the city center was captured and American forces declared the city secure. The Siege of Manila was the bloodiest urban combat of the war, taking the lives of the 17,000 Japanese defenders, over 1,000 U.S. troops, and between 100 and 240,000 civilians. The siege had nearly leveled the city, and Manila, once the Pearl of the Orient, was now a smoldering ruin. Even today, huge portions of the city that, before the war, were prosperous are slums. And the Battle of Luzon had only just begun. While the battle for Manila was taking place, another operation took place to open up Manila Bay to American warships. In order to secure the entrance to the bay, the U.S. needed to take the Japanese-held island of Corregidor, known to U.S. troops as the Rock, with its heavy artillery emplacements, which sat in the middle of the bay's entrance. On February 16, 1945, paratroopers of the 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment leapt from their C-47 transport planes over Corregidor in one of the largest American airborne operations in the Pacific Theater, landing under heavy Japanese fire. The American commanders had estimated the garrison to be only 1,000 men strong, but in fact it numbered over 5,000 battle-hardened Japanese troops. While the paratroopers landed, ditched their gear, and sprinted for cover on the crater-covered island, more troops approached the beach and landing craft, using the lull in Japanese fire caused by the paratrooper attack to land mostly unopposed. After the landing, the troops quickly pushed inland, fighting their way to the paratroopers. After linking up with the 503rd, the combined force then set about clearing the island of the Japanese defenders. For ten days, the battle raged as army troops went cave by cave, clearing out the Japanese. Neither side took any prisoners, and both the Americans and Japanese troops suffered heavy casualties. Finally, on February 26th, Corregidor was declared secure. The 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment, having taken heavy casualties in the battle, was nicknamed the Rock, in honor of the battle, a nickname which the regiment still uses to this day. 
Throughout the rest of March and April, U.S. and Filipino forces fought their way over the mountains and through the jungles in the northern and southern parts of Luzon, trying to root out the Japanese defense. These battles in the jungle would last for months, as Yamashita pursued a strategy of slowly relinquishing ground to the Allies as it became untenable, retreating to new defensive lines farther back. Kamikazes harried the fleet with constant attacks, targeting in particular the aircraft carriers which were viewed as the most valuable targets, as they had to only be damaged on the flight deck in order to render them useless. As the Americans advanced, they found everywhere evidence of Japanese atrocities, but the most horrifying of all were the POW camps. GIs found the emaciated corpses of prisoners of war strewn throughout the camps, as any man who could not march himself to a new camp in case of an evacuation was killed. In order to try and rescue living American prisoners, groups of army rangers and Filipino guerrillas trekked far behind enemy lines to capture camps and liberate the men before escorting them back through enemy territory to friendly lines. Such was the case at the camp of Cabanatuan, where rangers and guerrillas freed the camp and its 500 prisoners before marching over 50 miles back to friendly lines. The rangers feared that the prisoners were too frail to make it back to friendly territory, but one ecstatic prisoner replied, I made the death march from Bataan, so I can certainly make this one. Only the toughest could survive three years in a Japanese POW camp. This was nothing they hadn't seen before. The fighting for Luzon and the Philippines would continue well past March, but on another island to the east, the fight for its capture was only just beginning. Iwo Jima is a small, volcanic ash-covered island about 700 miles south of Japan. It sits at the halfway point along the route from Saipan to Tokyo. With its two airfields, it provided a perfect base for wounded B-29s to land and get repairs before flying the last leg back to the Marianas. 21st Bomber Command was concerned about the losses they were suffering, especially since B-29s and trained crews were at that time in short supply, so every crew and plane saved was worth it. On top of this, it was close enough to Japan for P-51s based there to fly escort missions for the B-29s. For these two reasons, 21st Bomber Command pressured Washington and the Pacific Fleet to take the island, and with Hap Arnold throwing his weight around in the Pentagon, they got what they wanted. Iwo Jima was selected by Admiral Chester Nimitz in the Pacific Fleet as their next invasion target. The Japanese had expected this move, and General Tadamichi Kuribayashi had been preparing for this moment for almost a year. Iwo Jima is shaped roughly like a tennis racket, stretching for over five miles in length, the width narrowing from around three miles on the eastern side to only a thousand yards in the west. Mount Suribachi, a 500-foot-tall dormant volcano, dominated the western side of Iwo and was the tallest point on the island. Running east from Suribachi, a huge black sand beach provided an ideal landing spot for invading troops. At the beach's eastern end, though, the landscape changed to a rough, hilly, and tree-studded landscape full of gullies and ridges, ideal terrain for defense. Expecting the Americans to land on this large beach on the south face of the island, Kuribayashi concentrated his defenses in the eastern part of the island, also fortifying Mount Suribachi. He would not contest the landing. Instead, fighting a grinding battle of attrition in the rough terrain that dominated the eastern part of the island. To this end, Kuribayashi ordered the construction of hundreds of miles of caves and bunkers that crisscrossed the island. His troops would be sheltered from American bombardment by the caves, and then they could use the caves to move from position to position, undetected by American forces, coming out to attack in places the Americans could not predict. Kuribayashi did not expect to win. He intended to take down as many Americans with him as he could, and he made this much clear to each and every one of his troops, telling them that they each must kill ten Americans before being killed themselves. With the preparations he had made, Kuribayashi was confident that his men could do as he told them. The American plan was eerily similar to what Kuribayashi had predicted, perhaps because it was the same strategy they had used on every other island up to this point. Three marine divisions, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th, would land on the large beach on the south side of Iwo. They would advance north, across the narrow width of the island at that point, and secure the two airfields there, called Motoyama 1 and Motoyama 2. They would then slowly advance east with two divisions, while the other one took Mount Suribachi. Once Suribachi was taken, all three divisions would then begin a rapid advance eastward, and secure the rest of the island. The whole operation was expected to take a couple of weeks at most, given that the planners assumed the weeks of bombardment beforehand would destroy most of the Japanese defenses. The bombardment would last 10 days, enough time, as evidenced by prior landings, to thoroughly ravage any and all Japanese shore defenses. The Americans had not counted on the fact that the shore might not be defended. The fleet of over 500 ships arrived off Iwo Jima on February 15, 1945, 
and was due to begin bombarding the island the next day. The Marine commander, General Holland Smith, requested the Navy perform the planned 10-day bombardment. However, Admiral William Blandy, commanding the supporting naval units, objected, saying that he would not have enough ammo left to support the Marines after the landing. In the end, Admiral Blandy overruled General Smith and went ahead with a three-day bombardment instead. However, any length of bombardment would not have stopped what was coming. The guns of nearly a dozen battleships, dozens of cruisers, and scores of destroyers began hammering the island on February 16th. The island was pummeled with thousands of shells, but bad weather obscured the view of the gunners, and the results of the shooting were unclear. The next day, the bombardment continued with even more intensity. Rocket ships moved in close to shore, unleashing deadly concentrated barrages on Japanese targets in the now clear weather. Destroyers moved in closer too, and began firing at the shore installations with the 40mm anti-aircraft guns that they had on board. The next day, the bombardment continued apace, with the whole fleet giving Iwo everything it had. Aircraft from carriers in the fleet bombed the island from above, knocking out anything that moved on the surface of the island. Iwo Jima had been evacuated of civilians by the Japanese a few months earlier, so anything moving was fair game for the Americans. The next morning, February 19th, after 72 hours of continuous bombardment, the shelling subsided, and it was time for the Marines to go ashore. Corporal James Hathaway describes the farewell speech he and the rest of his division were given before leaving for Iwo. General Clifton Cates gave us the Godspeed farewell message over the ship intercoms. We had heard two Navy pilots had been captured and tied to poles on Iwo, and the Japs ran by, cutting them with swords. General Cates said in his farewell speech, You know what went on ashore. Take no goddamn prisoners. Those were his exact words. All the time I was on Iwo Jima, I saw one prisoner, and a chaplain had him. John P. Marquand, a sailor aboard one of the battleships stationed off Iwo, describes his view of the landing. Anyone who has been there can shut his eyes and see the place again. It never looked more aesthetically ugly than on D-Day morning, or more completely Japanese. Its silhouette was like a sea monster with a little dead volcano for the head, and the beach area for the neck, and all the rest of it with its scrubby brown cliffs for the body. It also had the minute, fussy compactness of those miniature Japanese gardens. Its stones and rocks were like those contorted, wind-scoured, water-worn boulders which the Japanese loved to collect as landscape decorations. I hope to God, a wounded marine said later, that we don't get to go on any more of those screwy islands. An hour before H-hour, it shook and winced as it took what was being dished out to it. In fact, the whole surface of the island was in motion as its soil was churned by our shells and by the bombs from the carrier planes that were swooping down across its back. Every ship was firing with a rising tempo, salvo after salvo, with no more waiting for the shell burst to subside. Finally, Iwo Jima was concealing itself in its own debris and dust. The haze of battle had become palpable, and the island was temporarily lost in a gray fog. The LSTs are letting down the ramps, someone said. There could not have been a better place to observe the whole spectacle than from the air lookout station above the bridge, but there was too much to see. Only an observer familiar with the art and theory of amphibious warfare could possibly have unraveled all the threads, and an ordinary witness could only give as inaccurate an account as the innocent bystander gives to circumstances surrounding a killing on the street. There was no time any longer to ask questions or to digest kindly professional explanations. All the facts that one had learned from the secret documents were confused by the reality. The LSTs had let down their ramps, and the amphibious vehicles which they had carried were splashing through the water like machines from a production line. Watching them, I found myself speaking to a chief petty officer who was standing next to me. It's like all the cats in the world having kittens, I said, and the idea appeared to interest him. The amphibious vehicles, churning up the sea into foaming circles, organized themselves into lines, each line following its leader. Then the leaders moved out to the floating flags, around which they gathered in circling groups, waiting for their signal to move ashore. The Grey Landing Craft with the Marines had left the transport some time before for their own fixed areas, and they also were circling, like runners testing their muscles before the race. The barrage which had been working over the beach area had lifted, and the beach, with the smoldering terraces above it, was visible again. It was time for the first wave to be starting. It was hard to pick the first wave out in that sea of milling craft, but suddenly a group of the barges broke loose from its circle, following its leader in a dash toward shore. 
close to land, the leader turned parallel to the beach and kept on until the whole line was parallel. Then the boats turned individually and made a dash for it. The Navy had landed the first wave on Iwo Jima at 9 o'clock on the dot, or at least not more than a few seconds after 9. The first wave actually hit the beach at 8.59 a.m., one minute ahead of schedule. Private First Class Charles Waterhouse recalled a comedic moment as his landing craft hit the beach. We had a guy named Daniluk from Brooklyn, New York, whose draft number had come up. He wanted to get in the Coast Guard because he lived in Brooklyn, and he figured he could get a job on a ship patrol in New York Harbor, see? So he said to them, I want the Coast Guard. And they said, you're in the Marines. No, 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 I want the Coast Guard. They finally convinced him he had no say in the matter and that he was going to be a Marine. So every morning, as he threw the blankets off, his first words, the first thing he'd say was, Oh, that effing draft board. Every day. So in his honor, when the ramp lit down on Green Beach, the whole boatload of us hollered, Oh, that effing draft board. That was for Danny. The Japs must have thought, Here comes a bunch of nuts. The Marines, surprised at the lack of resistance, waded ashore and leisurely began making their way up the beach. As they advanced toward the edge of the beach and the island beyond, the Marines found that between them and the mainland was a 15-foot-tall ridge of black volcanic sand. The loose sand made the ridge nearly impossible to climb with the heavy gear, so the Marines slowly began shedding their gear and one by one helped each other up the slope, having the man behind them pass their gear up to them. It was a slow process, and by the time the second wave arrived a few minutes later, most of the Marines were still on the beach, sitting down and waiting for their turn to scale the ridge. As the second wave landed, they too came under no fire, and the whole landing operation to this point had been done with an abundant sense of leisure. The Americans were getting comfortable, and that was exactly what Kuribayashi wanted. By 10 a.m., an hour had passed with no Japanese resistance. The Navy had long before concluded that the bombardment had suppressed the Japanese defenses, and that now there was nothing to fear, and had ordered all the Marines and equipment ashore. Now... There were thousands of marines, hundreds of trucks and tanks, hundreds of landing craft, and all kinds of other equipment jammed on the small black strip of sand between the sea and the hard-to-cross ridge. Kurebayashi, watching from a bunker overlooking the beach from the eastern side, looked on in amazement, knowing his plan had worked, and now, at 10.01 a.m., gave the order for his defenders to open fire. Enfilade artillery fire from Mount Suribachi in the west and from the ridges in the east raked the beach, with nearly the entire American landing force caught in a crossfire. Machine guns and mortars and hidden bunkers near the beach also opened fire upon hearing the firing of the artillery. On the beach, Marines frantically began trying to climb up the ridge and move inland, but the loose sand sent them tumbling back down onto the beach. Some tried digging foxholes, but once again the loose sand prevented them from doing so filling back in the hole with as much sand as the shovel could remove. Tanks and trucks ran up and down the beach looking for areas where the ridge was not as high or steep. Landing craft quickly reversed off the beach and began speeding away to save themselves and to get reinforcements. The marines on the beach tried calling for artillery support, but they could not see their attackers because of Kuribayashi's well-built and highly camouflaged defenses. Battleships began opening fire at anything resembling a muzzle flash as destroyers moved in closer to the beach for a better view. Navajo code talkers embedded with the landing forces communicated between the marines and the ships, calling in hundreds of air and artillery strikes, but fire support was not going to get the marines off the beach. Only the marines could get the marines off the beach. Small groups of marines slowly began making their way up the sandy slopes and off the beach, taking out Japanese pillboxes and bunkers guarding the exits from the beach. Tanks began finding exit routes too, and soon the marines began an armored thrust across the island. With destroyers, battleships, and aircraft suppressing Japanese artillery positions with accurate fire directions provided by the Navajo talkers, the Marines were finally able to get up from their cover and move inland. The Japanese continued shelling the beach with all they had, leaving a small strip of sand covered in dead bodies, destroyed vehicles, and burning wrecks. The fighting was fierce, with Marines having to get within a few yards of each bunker to destroy it with a satchel charge or to douse the inside with a flamethrower. Both the Japanese, who had been told to kill 10 Marines before dying, and the Marines, who had been told, take no goddamn prisoners, took their instructions to heart, and the fighting was brutal. As the Marines advanced across the narrow neck of the island, they came under a deadly crossfire from the guns on Suribachi and those farther to the northeast. The best they could do was run from crater to crater, seeking cover wherever they could find it. While many Marines complained about the ineffectiveness of the pre-landing bombardment, the only reason those craters were there for them to hide in had been the Navy. So, 
As it turned out, the shelling had been good for at least one thing. By 10.30, despite the heavy fire, the Marines had begun moving off the beach and toward their objectives. On the Marine left flank, nearest Mount Suribachi, the 28th Marines managed to advance all the way across the island at its narrowest point, cutting off the Japanese defending Suribachi from the rest of the garrison. In the center, Marines supported by Amtrak's and Sherman tanks advanced towards Motoyama 1, gaining a foothold on the southern side by 11.30 a.m. For the rest of the day, the battle raged back and forth across the field, the Japanese launching many counterattacks, all of which failed. These counterattacks went against the direct orders of Kuribayashi, who wanted to preserve his numbers as long as he could, before resorting to bonsai tactics. As night fell, the southern side of the runway was still in Marine hands, as the Americans frantically began digging trenches and foxholes in anticipation of more counterattacks. Meanwhile, on the right flank, Marines advanced into the hilly, shrub-covered eastern side of the island, where much of the Japanese artillery that had been shelling the beach was located. Japanese soldiers in hidden positions launched dozens of ambushes on the advancing Marines, and the fighting soon devolved into hundreds of tiny, close-quarters firefights in the gullies between hills. Flamethrowers torched caves, landmines took Marines' legs out from under them, and grenades showered the landscape, detonating against rocky crags sending both their shrapnel and jagged pieces of rock flying in every direction. By nightfall, the Marines in this sector had barely made a few hundred yards of progress. The first day of fighting had been brutal for the Marines. They had lost a thousand men killed in less than 24 hours, on top of thousands more wounded. The 25th Marines, one of the units on the right flank, started the day with 900 men. The next morning, only 150 of them were able to keep up the fight. The Japanese had shown the Marines what they were capable of doing if they changed tactics, and the Marines were under no more illusions about how this battle would be fought. Everyone knew it was going to be the bloodiest they had fought yet. The Japanese, on the other hand, had lost only a few hundred men killed or wounded, and most of the island was still under their control. For the first time since the war had begun, the Americans had taken higher casualties than the Japanese in an amphibious attack. Kuribayashi's plan was working perfectly. The next day, February 20th, fighting for the airfield continued, as a pitching duel developed between the Marines and the Japanese as to who could toss a grenade the farthest. In the end, the All-American team won, with the Marines inching their way across the airfield. Meanwhile, the 28th Marines continued their success, slowly making their way toward the base of Mount Suribachi under heavy Japanese fire. On the right flank, the Marines continued their slog through what some had begun to call the meat grinder. Over the course of the following days, the Marines advanced yard by yard deeper into the heart of Iwo Jima, the slowest progress being in the area of the meat grinder, the fastest being in the relatively flat area in the center of the island where the two airfields were located. By February 23rd, Mount Suribachi had almost been secured, and it was clear that there were only a handful of defenders left. One of the Marine commanders in the 28th decided, in a much-needed attempt to boost morale after four straight days of heavy casualties, to order a platoon to scale Mount Suribachi and plant an American flag at the top. The platoon selected made the climb with relative ease, coming under very little Japanese fire. Once at the top, they made sure the area was clear and began looking for a spot to raise the flag. They had brought no flagpole with them, but a section of water piping that the Japanese had put there was repurposed for the job. With two lengths of the piping fastened together, the flag was tied to the top, and six marines hoisted the pole skyward, jamming the base in between a few boulders. Shortly after the flag was raised, an eager photographer arrived in the scene and took a picture of the platoon standing around the flag they had raised, with the whole of Iwo Jima as their backdrop. Men all around the island cheered as they looked up and saw the American flag flying over Mount Suribachi. Secretary of the Navy James Forrestal, also present on the island, saw the flag and wanted it for a souvenir. He sent a man up the mountain to retrieve the flag, but the Marines declined as it had been loaned to them by a landing craft skipper on the condition that the skipper would get it back. They agreed on a compromise, though. Forrestal found a second flag. It was carried up the mountain. The first flag was taken down and taken back to the owner, and the second one raised again in its place. During this second flag raising, the photographer and another film cameraman were both present to record the historic moment, the photo and video taken becoming cultural icons in the United States and symbols of World War II throughout the globe in the years following. Even though Suribachi had been taken, there was still much fighting left to do. For another month, Marines slogged their way eastward across the length of the island, every step of the way being ambushed or attacked in some other way by the remaining defenders. The majority of the garrison was still intact, and the brutal, attritional warfare would be some of the deadliest and gloomiest of World War II. You didn't see too many Japs. Once in a while, they'd run from one cave to another. You more or less seen their fire. You could see dust coming. As soon as we'd see that, we'd zone right in, and when we got up there, they'd be laying there. 
The terrain got rougher and rougher because of the catacombs and stuff where the water had washed in amongst it over the years. Some places you could step over a crack and you'd see a big gap down in there. Or you'd go around the corner and they'd be standing right there face to face. Whoever shot first was the winner. I saw one marine shoot another marine bone dead right in my squad because he went around this way and the other went around that way and it was just like I said, you don't have a split second. You just pull the trigger, shoot first. Whoever does, they're the ones going to win. We had to take the guy that shot the other marine, take him clear out because he just went berserk. Corporal Glenn Buzzard, Machine Gunner, 24th Marines, 4th Marine Division. Fighting continued until March 26, 1945, when the last remaining pockets of Japanese defenders finally made one last bonsai charge at the Marines. They were killed swiftly and without mercy by the Americans. Among these last defenders was General Kurebayashi himself, who was last seen drawing his sword before joining the attack. His remains have never been found. After these last pockets were cleared, the island was declared secure. The battle for Iwo Jima was the bloodiest battle in the Pacific War to date for the Marine Corps. 6,821 Marines lost their lives for the barren rock in the middle of the Pacific, with another 19,217 being wounded. The Japanese, meanwhile, suffered heavier losses, particularly in the latter stages, with 18,000 men killed and only 216 taken prisoner by the Americans. The Americans rarely took Japanese prisoners, and the Japanese rarely offered surrender, a deadly combination. While the island had come at a heavy cost, it was all worth it in the eyes of the 20th Air Force. Even as fighting on the island raged, the first B-29s made emergency landings on Iwo's airfields. Soon, a group of P-51 fighters arrived on the island, and in total, over 2,000 emergency landings were made possible by the taking of Iwo, saving thousands of lives and hundreds of aircraft. That was all in the future, though. And in the present, it was still up to the 21st Bomber Command to prove the immense sacrifice had been worth it. Months had passed since the B-29s had begun their bombing campaign on Japan, and as of yet, little damage had been done. With only eight months left before the scheduled invasion of Japan, time was running short to prevent that deadly operation. Both the Americans and Japanese were getting desperate, as evidenced by the ferocity of the fighting on Leyte, Luzon, and Iwo Jima. And as November drew closer and closer, both sides would abandon their already low standards in order to secure a victory. The last months of the war would be a no-holds-barred bloodbath, each side coming up with newer and deadlier ways to make the other side give in and surrender. Who would win? How low would the world fall? With the end nowhere in sight, nobody could know. I've been your host, Carter McNish, and that's all for this episode of LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Join us next time as we discuss the deadliest night in human history, the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945, the night Tokyo burned.